Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, a podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. And an additional content warning for this week, as we'll be discussing elements of Barbarian's plot that deal with rape and incest. For this week's episode, my guests and I are chatting about the Airbnb Nightmare from Hell, that being Zach Krager's 2022 film, Barbarian, in which Tess, played by Georgina Campbell, learns that her secluded Airbnb has been double-booked with a strange man named Keith, who's played by Bill Skarsgård. But the duo quickly learn that there's more to the house in its nefarious history than the listing indicated. And joining me once again to chat hellish homes and sicko cinema is returning friend of the show and the features editor of Gamer.com, Andrew King. Andrew, welcome back to the show. How we doing, Jay? It's great to be here. Although I'm sure... Uh, Tess would not say the same thing at the start of this movie. <laughs> well, that seems to be the uh, the general thread with whatever movie I'm talking about. I'm always excited to have guests here that can talk about a film and, you know, more often than not enthusiastically about it, even if uh, the characters would beg to differ about their situations. Right. That's the thing about horror. We love to watch it. They don't love to experience it. <laughs> And more often than not, we get a little bit more out of their uh, their plight and what they're dealing with. So in a way, it's cathartic for the audience, while it might not always be so, uh, so cathartic for the characters in that situation. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. But with a film such as Barbarian that, you know, has been one of, I would say, the biggest indie horror films or lesser known horror films right out of the gate to come out in 2022, this is one that, you know, has exploded not only popularity with audiences, critically successful, and also, you know, as of recording, they've made about 10 times the budget uh, in profits with, you know, going from a $4 million budget to, you know, I think 2 million shy of that, of 40 million. Um, and so I'm curious for you, like, what were the expectations going into this movie? Because as we both know, having seen the movie, you know, it goes in some areas and directions that were very clearly not uh, part of that trailer. Right. Yeah. I mean, my expectations for it were almost entirely built by the word of mouth around it. And I started to see that a little before it came out. I feel like it had like a festival premiere. And I feel like that was when I started to hear stuff about it on my Twitter. Um, But yeah, the trailer this is the danger of a trailer like this is that it gave away very little about what it was about. And so that trailer just didn't do a ton for me when I first saw it. The only thing that did intrigue me about it um, was that it was called barbarian Hmm. and that everything that it had showed in that short trailer, which, you know, just shows Tess getting there, meeting Keith, realizing they double left the home, Keith disappearing into the basement and her going after him, to find him and then he crawls out of the darkness on all fours Mm. and then it cuts smash cuts to that title barbarian and um so it did have the effect of intriguing me but you know i go to the movies a lot i see a lot of trailers and horror trailers and like another one that was showing around the same time was smile and it's like i have a much clearer idea of what smile is by watching that trailer than i do a barbarian from watching the trailer like smile i get 
they I don't feel like they gave away too much of the plot of Smile, but it, like watching that trailer, I'm like, okay, it's like a it's like the ring, you know, they're it's passing along from people that have seen somebody smiling. I understand that. I've seen movies like that. Um and Barbarian just, you know, gave me so little in those trailers that it wasn't until people started talking about it that I got interested. Yeah, you know, I think I'm coming at it somewhat similar to you in that the title was so striking. And it didn't seem like there was a clear indication of what that has to do with the film itself or no indication of who the barbarian is. Is there, you know, a creature in that down in that basement or is there a person down there? Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that nowadays I'm so used to trailers just not only a being way too long. Granted, I didn't see whatever the final trailer was leading up to the release. I'd seen I don't know what it was. It was a teaser trailer, I think, that came out of some film festival circuit around that time. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I thought, okay, this is along the similar lines of what you kind of expect from horror movies, right? Okay, we're going to go in the creepy basement and there's going to be something down there. But it was more just how little it was showing, which I found to be more intriguing than if they had shown an indication of what the barbarian was in reference to, mostly because yeah. I was just thinking about the way that that film is shot, even from the trailer, it looks very purposeful in everything that in its construction. It is, you know, very, this kind of like tense, moody atmosphere. And the fact that they're not showing or indicating what the reveal is, to me, that was intriguing in a way that, again, I don't consider a lot of trailers nowadays to be because, you know, studios are terrified of people not showing up to theaters these days. So that's probably why we have trailers that are not only, you know, two minutes, but sometimes go as far to being three minutes. And they show sometimes some of the best money shots in a horror film within that trailer. And, you know, one thing about Barbarian and all the success that it's had in the short amount of time that it kind of does feel like proof positive that, you know, you don't have to have a big reveal in your trailer or even much of an indication of what it's about and audiences and specifically, you know, horror fans and genre fans will show up and support that film. Um, I think that the word of mouth, as you said, that was how mostly you had um, found out about it or just, you know, had kind of, maybe uh, inspired you a little bit more to see the film than actually the trailer for the film. And I think that that's something that bigger studios have spent a lot of time almost kind of like trying to prove that that's not the case almost with the way they construct trailers. So I found that just going into Barbarian without knowing anything, I was really excited because I was kind of like, well, if this looks that good and it could be this intriguing to me, I was like, well, this has to have a huge reveal. Uh, and, you know, as we will get into, that reveal is certainly shocking and uh, disturbing mm. in a way that I don't think either one of us could have truly, uh, truly anticipated. Right. But uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about early on is just, you know, the pacing and the buildup of that first first act, right? Because as we mentioned, there's this kind of like this nightmare scenario with Airbnb, which is more or less like a logistic screw up, if you will. But the film really does spend a good 35, 40 minutes with these two characters and just them interacting with one another. And it doesn't go maybe in the more traditional horror monster moments early on in the film. Almost It take, almost takes half of the film to a certain point to right. get there. Um, how is sort of Craig's crafting and build up to the reveal in that first act? How did that work for you? Um, it worked pretty well. I think... Um... As we're saying, the trailer does not show much of the movie, but I was surprised by how long the movie actually takes to get to the point where the trailer leads off. 
because yeah, the trailer ends with her going into the basement and seeing him crawling towards her. And I was like, sort of, you know, checking my watch, like, wow, we've been in here for 30 minutes and we're not to that point yet. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I like slower paced movies, so I sort of enjoyed like luxuriating in the longer version of the setup while still knowing basically where that first part was going, especially because, um, you know, the word of mouth around it was so centered on you won't believe where it's going. So for that, I'm sort of just, you know, like settling in and like buckling up because I know that like whatever is after that moment from the trailer is it has to be wild to have justified the word of mouth so yeah it was sort of like that first act to me felt like the uh you know going up the first tail of a roller coaster you know waiting for the drop to kick in yeah i was really impressed just how that first segment of the film really rests upon you know Skarsgård and uh georgina campbell's performance uh and the fact of you know they Basically, you know, it's navigating this minefield of red flags, right? Because everything about this situation says that Tess should just be like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to I'm just going to go hang out in the lobby of some hotel in town if I can't get a room anywhere is better than here. And right. I was appreciative of the fact that, you know, it's one of those things where some people could be like, well, I would just leave. But I find that the way in which the director navigates those interactions and gives just enough that it's like, okay, this is kind of sketchy, but then you have Skarsgård actually, you know, go out of his way to be like, well, I'm going to make certain sacrifices to make you comfortable, right? Because this is like mm-hmm. supposed to be not a safe neighborhood and which we don't actually know at the moment uh, that they mm-hmm. meet, but it is this, you know, more secluded neighborhood. She doesn't really know where she is and it's downpour and everything. And it, I was just appreciative of the fact that they drag out these red flags that are, you know, still very socially awkward, but I feel mm-hmm. like every time you're just about to get to the precipice of like, okay, rip that emergency cord and just get out of there because of, you know, the anticipation for Skarsgård's character being some kind of weirdo. And it was just nice mm-hmm. to see, you know, uh, Craigers circumvent that and just be like, well, actually, this is just some socially awkward guy that's in an awkward situation with her. And to not right. just lean into something that we've seen in all these films where it's like, well, if you think that that person's probably a monster to a certain extent, they probably are in horror films, right? And to kind of just have it be mm-hmm. this, seeing how far that this social awkwardness can go before something kind of transpires or comes of it. And then the film just kind of like hits us over the head with something that we weren't expecting. Right. Kreger in a piece that I was reading um, where it was sort of interviewing him about the writing process of this movie said that he didn't, know where the movie was going he just sort of had the premise that it's two people that get double booked at a airbnb and then he just wrote from there and he got to the point where they were going down into the basement and at that point he was still planning on having uh skarsgård's character be a bad guy and then he was like well nothing i could do here would live up to what people are expecting the horror of the situation would be like if he turns out to be you know like uh you know, like if he assaults her or something or just turned out to be a bad guy, like none of that is really surprising. We expect all of that. And the bigger twist is not going there. You know, he said that in the script, you know, spoilers for what the twist is. 
but he just wrote, and then a naked woman runs out and smashes Keith's head against the wall. And he laughed at it and was like, okay, that's, that's funny. And I like that, but I think we're done because I don't see a way to go from here. But then he, you know, sort of put it in a drawer and came back to it like a week later and was like, okay, there's, I've been thinking about this. I can't get out of my head. There's some meat on the bones. And then just sort of wrote from there. But I, it, it's such a twisty movie that it seems like he would have had the ending in mind from the beginning. And that just is not how it, he wrote it at all. It just unfolded very organically. Yeah. Cause you know, there really isn't a movie, so to speak, if it just ends up being, you know, this creepy guy in a creepy house and he has this torture room in the basement, right? Because, you know, sure, that could have, plenty of movies have been made about that similar premise, but as we said, it would not be unique or as interesting as Barbarian is, or, you know, have some of the uh, moments that are, you know, seared into our brains with just the direction that this film goes. But yeah, you know, also at being horror fans and just the connection between Skarsgård and Pennywise, it's like, well, I know what he's capable of when he plays like a dastardly villain in a horror movie. Let's see how weird he can mm-hmm. get in this movie without makeup. And then when he becomes, you know, the first victim in real time in the movie, it's that type of thing. And of course, you know, the shocking imagery that goes along with that. Um, I, I was appreciative again of the fact that he was just clearly like, okay. And I had read the same interview. So the idea that he was writing it as just like this awkward interaction for so long and then throws this curveball in, but then that curveball, you know, actually does flourish into something that can support a whole second half of a film. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess that kind of brings to the point before we dive into the, you know, the monster and the twist of what's in the basement, you know, there is a pretty shocking and not in the traditional sense, but just like sudden, I suppose, tonal shift, right? After you have Tess in the basement and she goes in the basement and we see, you know, Keith get killed by this towering naked monster, right? You have this mm-hmm. almost like a slam cut to in two weeks in the future, we meet this new character, AJ, who's played by Justin mm-hmm. Long, who's like in this nice convertible driving down this, you know, idyllic kind mm-hmm. of like coastal highway. He's just, you know, jamming out and driving down this street. And, you know, it's very shocking because of how tonally Mm. different it is from where we've just been. We've just had this horror uh, bestowed upon us. And all of a sudden we're just, you know, I assume an idyllic uh, coastal highway in California. And Mm. in the moment that was very shocking. And I even remember, you know, people in the audience almost kind of like giggling about it because it is just so Mm. tonally different. Um, for you, yeah. like, what was that moment like for you? And how do you feel about yeah. sort of just going from this moment that it's like, oh, this is the big reveal and then shifting to something entirely different that you really don't understand how it connects for maybe 15 minutes? Yeah, I was expecting Justin Long to show up because his name's on the poster. I had seen people talk about him being in the movie on Letterbox and on Twitter. So I was expecting him to show up, but I thought he would be in the basement. I thought he would be like, you know, somebody who was like imprisoned down there or something. And so when it sort of unveils itself to have this almost like Pulp Fiction-esque uh, structure, that did uh, surprise me. But I was like, I was very down for that because, you know, as we said, the trailer sort of leaves off on the moment that this first act leaves off on. And so I was like, okay, now we're in the... Now we're in the the twisty territory. I'm excited to see what happens with it. Um, I didn't mind the tonal shift at all because, you know, some of my favorite horror movies are, you know, also sort of comedies. You know, like I love Jordan Peele 
And Kreger obviously has a similar background to Jordan Peele. He was in the whitest kids, you know, Jordan Peele got his start through, you know, Matt TV and then Kean Peele. Um, so I was, you know, I enjoyed the shift to Justin Long. Um, yeah. How did you feel about it? Did you know he was in the movie? What was your expectation you know, going in. I actually didn't know that he was even in the movie. So all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, this is the first movie I've seen Justin Long in in probably a couple of years. Um, and yeah. it was, but it was the thing where I was kind of like very confused. I was like, oh, if, it's almost as if like all the air got sucked out of the room kind of, because I was in that moment mm. because it is so in your face and so brutally violent after, you know, 35, 40 minutes into the movie. And to kind of like transition from that, to something that, again, trying to figure out how this connects. Because like you, as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, is this the backstory to somebody that we're going to f- discover in the basement? And mm-hmm. then finding out that's not the case. Again, it's a testament, I think, to how Craigers is able to like write this weaving narrative that you would assume had a lot more forethought into it than what you know mm-hmm. it turns out was actually the process in making the film. But I actually, in the long run, appreciated that tonal shift because it takes a step back because realistically no film is going to be able to maintain that level of tension, that level of horror. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in fact, that tonal shift and moving out of that area entirely for a bit, it allows that, you know, early on tension in that first half of the film to build up in a way that I actually really appreciate. And if anything, it makes the later half of the film up until, you know, the third act really hit for me in a way that, I don't find many horror films do because, you know, by that point, a lot of them have kind of been, I think it exhausts the audience after a certain period of time because it's just so in your Mm -hmm. face. It's so intense for such a long period of time that you never get that moment to breathe really. And, you know, whether or not horror fans want to admit it, I think we all need to take a breather from that what's going on in the film for uh, periods at a time. So that way you can kind of reach those heights again or reach a new height of terror or whatnot. Um, I also right. yeah. was appreciative of the fact that his character is not just another person staying at the Airbnb, right? It's not just, mm-hmm. you know, oh, here's another guy. But we're given insight into his backstory of why this character is relevant. But also, you know, I'm appreciative that it's fleshed out more so than this is just, you know, a piece of shit guy, right? Which he is. But mm-hmm. I just yeah. appreciated the fact that you get to explore this character and their own delusions to a certain point, right? Because when we meet him, mm-hmm. he's getting kicked off of his sitcom show because one of his co-stars made an allegation that he sexually assaulted them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of those moments where I was like, again, kind of like, what does this really have to do with the character and the yeah. premise of this film? And is it going to have a greater significance? And while it doesn't have a significance overall to, you know, Tessa's plight and everything, the ways in which that, character's background informs us about their decisions and why they're making the decisions that they make throughout the film. Um, I was mm-hmm. appreciative of because it made him feel like a viable inclusion into this, you know, film and wasn't just like, yeah, here's a famous guy that we're going to, you know, throw through the ringer. Um, it added a little more context to just making this feel like a person that is in a lived in space, if you will. Right. I like how the movie gives you enough time with him that, you end up building some sympathy for him. Cause I feel like it mirrors the way that we feel about like celebrities who get accused of, you know, sexual assault or whatever, like it, you know, we have this like sort of, we're familiar with them. We feel like we know them through their projects or whatever. So we don't want to believe that I like the ultimate 
example of this for me was like when the Bill Cosby allegations came out in 2013 or 2014, whenever that happened. And like I had grown up watching, you know, the Cosby show with my parents and like thought of him as like, you know, a grandfather almost. So when that came out, I was like, man, I don't want to believe that this is true, you know. And then it was just like it got to the point where it was like, well, either, you know, it's either he's lying and he did do it or, you know, 30 people are lying about him. You know, like we feel like we know these people. And so we have this sort of built in um, sympathy towards them. And while we don't know Justin Long until this moment, spending, you know, a half hour with him, getting to know him makes us feel like, OK, maybe he was, you know, falsely accused. Like in some ways, he seems like a piece of shit, you know, like that his um you know, just the way that he acts with people. He is not very convincing in the scene when he goes out clubbing with his friend and is like explaining his side of the story. It seems like, yeah, you seem pretty guilty right now. I think that's an important moment, right? I think that that is far better than, you know, him actually, because at one point after that, he gets drunk, obviously, and he goes home and he leaves. What is the one thing he's not supposed to do, which is have contact with his accuser. And he quite literally calls them and leaves them this drunken rambling voicemail, which is surely every lawyer's worst nightmare. Um, But I I thought that it was very telling that the scene previous to that, you know, his old friend that he's out drinking with basically like tell, asks him like, what's the deal with this? Did this really happen? And he basically Mm -hmm. confesses to the audience, right? Not only to his friend, but to the audience because he starts, you know, he's got these kind of like long winded, workarounds to did you do it or did you not and he's like oh you well you know like sometimes like and he starts doing this kind of like weird hypothetical thing where it's just like it's a yes or no question and the fact that your answers are getting longer and more rambling it's like well you're pretty much telling on yourself and i was more appreciative of the fact that again you know that character without saying emphatically yes or no that they did this they basically spell it out in the way that they dance around the question, um, right. which I found to be more informative than, again, if we had some kind of contrived thing where, you know, the the accuser then has to literally tell the audience what they did over that phone call. Yeah, I think it pretty effectively, at least for me, juked me in the direction of thinking, OK, he did it, but he's also... Like, I, th- I thought that the movie was going to be going in the direction of, like, yes, he did it, but he's not entirely villainous. Like, he still is willing to help Tess or whatever. Mm. And then the film, in the end, validates exactly what you think about him from the beginning. Like, when he first gets that call, when he's driving in his convertible, you're like, yeah, this dude is a piece of shit who sexually assaulted this co-star. And then you spend enough time with him that you think, okay, maybe maybe there's layers to this guy. And then you wrap back around to no, there's nothing there. He just is as bad as we thought he was from the beginning, you know? Yeah, the film itself really does serve as like his attempt at a redemption arc, right? Because it's like, oh, well, there's, again, whether or not people agree at that point that he did or didn't do it, right? It's the idea that, oh, well, if he steps up in this moment, maybe he can have some semblance of a redemption arc in the context mm-hmm. of the film, right? And I think that, again, showing through his actions that, no, really, he is just this opportunistic person that is going to take what he wants when he feels that he deserves it, which, you know, could be that interaction of which he was accused or at the end of the film, right, where he has a window to escape and he just decides, well, I should just sacrifice this person so I I can live. Um, But I think before we get quite towards the ending, you know, with, I want to go back to the first act again, because 
something mm-hmm. that I was appreciative of that really does bolster Tess's character in being this character that, you know, defies maybe some of the tropes of a lot of these types of horror films that, you know, deal with the spooky house with the monster in it. Um, there's a lot of moments, and it's probably due to what you mentioned earlier, uh, Craig's background in mm. comedy and humor. I just think about, you know, Tess's exploration of the basement, right? And how, you know, the door starts creaking and moving and trying to close behind her as if she's going to get locked in. And then she not only, you know, puts a chair there, but she kind of like looks down the basement steps and is like, no, I'm not going to go explore yeah. in this moment. Of course, she will eventually explore it. But I'm a fan of directors that are a little more aware of, you know, some of the tropes that are customary, you know, customary of these types of films and quite literally, you know, laughing along with the audience at them. But in doing so, you know, it actually strengthens their characters, I find. Their characters are self-aware enough that, you know, they would do things that, you know, anybody would hopefully do uh, in some of those situations. Yeah, I feel like Peel is the pioneer of this. I mean, not the pioneer, because I'm sure there's other horror films that have done this, but he's talked explicitly about the way that he has sort of tried to write movies for black audiences that would not be would not make the same mistakes that white people often make in these movies mm-hmm. like he's named two of it, two of his movies at this point after reactions that audiences have yeah. to <laughs> yeah. what horror you know what happens in horror movies and like i laughed during this because tass literally says nope when the door opens mm-hmm. um so yeah Kreger feels like he's working in the same territory in that way because he's trying to like build up that plausible deniability for the character that like they have a reason that they did what they did. You know, she didn't want to do, she didn't want to stay at the Airbnb, but there was a convention in town. It was raining. She was in an unsafe neighborhood. Like there are all these reasons that she had to stay. And, you know, he does a good job of like, giving us those reasons to sympathize with the character or empathize with the character and not like yell at them basically and not feel like they're stupid. Yeah. I think that it's refreshing again to have a character that you can see yourself as an audience member in, you know, in their shoes, having a little more common sense in some of these regards. And I think that that's something that, I don't know, maybe some directors or writers just don't have the same insight into those influences and these things that we've mentioned. But, you know, a lot of the time you end up with these characters that kind of just feel like hollow vessels. And from the outset, you know, Tess feels like a character that is just a normal person and reacts accordingly. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's why that scene when she goes down those steps and, find you know, keeps finding these different layers to the tunnel system and the basement and these things... Um, and then sees Skarsgård crawling on all fours, which is, you know, not only super shocking and super unexpected, but just her reaction. I think that's, again, something about her performance that's so strong is that, you know, it really is this thing where she genuinely seems terrified, whereas, you know, a majority of the time it's just like, OK, well, this is just an attractive person screaming where with her, you know, we she clearly has the foresight to be like, well, there's something down here that is threatening. And yet she's going to persist and go down because she's a good person. She's going to try to help this person that, you know, she's done a 180 on in a short amount of Mm. time, right? This person that she assumed was going to be a threat and then finding out they have some semblance of a connection between their lines of work or people they've worked with. And, you know, eventually you keep waiting for that moment. And then of course 
the reveal of that monster. Um, and, you know, I guess before even talking about the monster, we have to talk about, again, another, you know, shift in time. But this time it's not moving forwards, it's moving backwards. And I believe it's in yeah. the 60s where we go back to the origin of the house itself. But it is this, like, a significant period of time take in the film of course takes place in Detroit and you know in the current day it's this rundown there's one house that's still standing and then mm. we travel back in time to see the origin of the homeowner in that house and how the entire neighborhood is you know flourishing for the moment but is clearly you know on the decline because even a neighbor comes up to the homeowner and says you know oh we're thinking about moving you know things are changing and we mm-hmm. learned that, you know, the homeowner is a serial killer, right? And he yeah. is played by Richard Brake, who I think is, like, I think the world of him is a character actor now, a more modern character mm-hmm. actor, because even if he doesn't have a significant role in a film, even if he only has a few lines of dialogue, like in this, he barely speaks. He is such an unsettling presence, just in the way he mm-hmm. carries himself. And he, you know, is perfect for this role in that we find out, okay, the homeowner of the house that Tess is trapped in was not only a serial rapist, but also murderer. And, you know, had been doing this to women in the area for perhaps decades. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, taking that step back in time, I found, again, just reinforces the amount of world building that's here. I mean, how many of these types of movies does a director take time to actually, you know, transport us to the origin of, you know, the evil, if you will, or the person that, you know, actually transpired this entire event even if our protagonists mm-hmm. are unaware. Um, I guess, did you find that that flashback was as effective as I did or how did that land for you? Yeah, I, I definitely liked it because I was into it just from like the perspective of, okay, it's expanding the, like the amount of time that we're dealing with. Like in low, in low budget movies like this, you know, made for 4 million, I, am very much into things like that that can make it feel a lot bigger than the budget would suggest it should be. And like, this is just one location, but they are shooting it in completely different, you know, states of repair, right? Like when it's in the eight, I just looked it up. It's in the eighties is when the, the first section is, but yeah, in that section, it's very nice. It is just like the idyllic suburban neighborhood. And then when we see it, it's, you know, completely different. I feel like it's a movie that has a very um, low opinion of Airbnb and (laughs) the sort of like, like that sort of opportunistic, Mm. like, like law skirting, you know, areas of the economy, right? Because it's like, the two people, the guy who actually owned this house in the 80s, is a serial killer and rapist. And the guy who owns it now as an Airbnb property is a rapist. So it's like, it sort of is positioning Airbnb as sort of that kind of, you know, like something that is taking advantage of like the community, right? I like that aspect of it a lot that it is, I think that like the Detroit setting could seem incidental, but I think that like, Detroit is a city that has been shaped by, you know, these forces by, you know, white people leaving the city in droves in the, you know, 80s, you know, and moving to the suburbs and 
the city sort of falling into disrepair because there was not the same amount of like funding and investment that there were when there were more white people living there. And so because it was a majority black city, it was allowed to fall into that kind of disrepair. And the movie is really in conversation with that. Like Skarsgård's character is this guy who is like moving into Detroit and like takes over these old, you know, buildings because they can get the rent for super cheap. And then like, you know, starting artist colonies there basically, which is the less, you know, predatory gentrification-y version of it than like the Airbnb, but it's on a continuum. It feels like it's on a continuum. And it sort of feels like it's using the idea of men as predators as a stand-in for these predatory areas of the economy. The Airbnb like functions similarly to a, you know, somebody who's sexual assaulting women. Airbnb is doing that to communities, right? Um, and I don't think that's reading too much into it. Like, I yeah. think there's a lot about this movie that is about homeownership and renting and like, you know, what like turning, you know, homeownership into something that's unattainable does to communities and to you know, local economies, basically. It really is like the modern day haunted house type of a thing, right? I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. this thing that I think one of my favorite shots of the entire film is when Tess leaves the house the next morning and, you know, the night before there's no streetlights. So the entire neighborhood is, you know, shrouded in darkness to the point that the only thing that she can see is the front door of the house she's staying at. And when she leaves the next morning, she is like looking at her phone and then she looks up And then she realizes every single house in that neighborhood is completely dilapidated. It almost looks kind of like almost Katrina-esque, right? And Mm -hmm. it's the thing that I just love that that is able to not only sneak up on the character, but in reality, you know, if people are not exposed to imagery from communities like that, that have been so neglected, it's the type Mm -hmm. of thing that they look at it. And I mean, even the way I just described it, right? It's Katrina-esque, except there was no natural disaster there. It was a man-made disaster, if you will. Um, or a man-made disaster that was allowed to, you know, ravage a community. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. And I think that in this era with modern horror, some people like to try to say like, oh, horror tries to ram its politics down our throat and these things, which we, of course, know is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Horror has always been political. But I find that this is far more effective in commentary of the fact that, you know, the things that you've just talked about mm-hmm. don't really have a great deal of, you know, explaining in interactions between characters, it's more, you know, we're able to, you know, see that through people's actions. Again, coming back to a film that doesn't spend a great deal of time explaining things, rather, you know, we come to our own conclusions about people based on their actions, quite literally just showing us. Um, And Mm -hmm. I find that that's why I don't find that that's reading too much into what you've just been saying, you know, of the film. I think that it's clear as day there because it's quite literally, you know, displayed to the audience um, in a way that, right. yeah, it's it ends up making for the perfect, really, metaphor, I find, for this type of horror story. Um, and then, of yeah. course, you know, if it, if it wasn't a horror movie, unless you have this fantastical monster uh, that we're going to get to in a moment. But yeah, I just find that the playing around with time and showing that just because, you know, we're going through these decades of, you know, technological advances and supposedly societal advancements and these things, there's just, there's still monsters they've just changed um, and, you know, are maybe right. a little more fantastical in uh, the context of a horror film. Yeah, I think that's the thing that horror is able to do and why it's so effective at socio 
you know, economic commentary mm-hmm. is because like, you know, if like a white person has never experienced, you know, racism towards them, like they may have a hard time ex- understanding what a black person goes through in America, but get out is able to, you know, take that experience, give it a sci-fi, like, you know, coat of paint basically, and make it horrifying to people that otherwise wouldn't see it that way. And barbarian is doing the same thing where it is like, what is, what has been allowed to happen to Detroit and I'm from Michigan. So this is sort of, you know, my you know backyard but like what has been allowed to happen to detroit and flint the disrepair that has been allowed to happen there and like the straight up poisoning of a city through the water supply that's been allowed to happen in flint in which nobody has faced consequences for nobody in power has faced consequences for those are horrifying things and sometimes it takes a horror movie making that the you know giving it like the you know like the elevated, you know, treatment that we're talking about here, where it's like there's an actual monster living in the basement of this Airbnb for us to see the horror that is like right in front of our faces. Yeah. And I think that there's another moment of the film that, um, I, you know, at least some of the people that I've talked to that, you know, are uh, white also like me, they have had mm-hmm. criticisms about that interaction that Tess has with the cops, right? When she, mm. you know, manages to escape the house and then she, finally find some police officers in that area. And what's the first mm-hmm. thing that they do? They treat her as if she's a criminal, right? Because, you know, she's mm-hmm. clearly disheveled. She's just escaped this traumatic incident. And they treat her like she is basically, you know, it might be an oversimplification. They treat her like she's a crackhead kind of. And even when she takes them back to the house, right? They don't believe her, even though, you know, she clearly, you know, my car is here and all of these things, but they just disregard her experience and invalidate it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of people that I've talked to about this film, they were like, well, that's not really believable. And I immediately I was kind of just like, well, yeah, you haven't experienced that because you're a white person in America. Right. right? And so that is another aspect of the film that I found, you know, is able to, you know, it display experiences that might be, you know, foreign to the average American perhaps, but, you know, thinking about the context of the city, this is taking place in just, Amer- you know, the current state of, you know, politics in America, just where we're at as a country, you know, seeing horror be this vessel that's able to tackle multiple elements such as that in a film that doesn't feel like it's bogged down by them. If anything, again, it feels like it is a more realistic, you know, depiction of the real world, which, you know, when balancing that with, again, the more fantastical elements of this movie, um, I find it makes for a richer film that feels like, oh, it almost like tricks your brain into being like, well, there can't really be a monster because we're dealing with all of these issues that are clearly in our present day. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you know, you run into uh, run back into the house and face that monster. Right. Yeah, it is sort of a sneaky movie and that it is very un preachy about the stuff that it's about. But then you like start talking about it and you're like, oh, it's about race. It's about like the housing crisis in America. It's about like like sexism and like you know gender like it's about all these things that you are not thinking about as you take it in you're just like oh this is a wild ride and then you like start thinking back on you're like wow that had a lot to say i mean there's like there are other there's a there's like a subgenre of movie that i really am 
sort of fascinated by, but deeply annoyed with, which is the sort of post Me Too elevated horror mm. that we've seen from like movies like Men and um, uh, Last Night in Soho, mm. where it's like, this feels like directors who like have thought very little about this before now, like being confronted with like Me Too and like sexism in their industry and thinking, oh, well, that's a good idea for a horror film. And then trying to make horror films about it without any real insight. Men feels like a rough draft for this movie to me. It's dealing with a lot of the same things. Like even the setup is similar. It's about a woman who is going to a rental and is creeped out by the guy who is renting it Mm. to her and the people that live in the area. Um, It's just that men basically stops there. It's like, that's as much as it has to say. It's like men are scary to women. (laughs) And this this movie like is fully aware of that. That's like its baseline that it starts at and then builds on it, right? Like it, we enter the house and realize that like Tess is we understand the gender dynamics. You don't need to make a whole horror movie to get us to the point that like men can be scary to women. We start with that baseline in a post Me Too hmm. world. Um, and then it is able to like build something from there instead of letting that instead of letting the metaphor be the monster like right. this has a, a monster that actually you know it, it's doing something beyond the you know the baseline yeah it is a film that continually grows and changes which is why i think it is so rare again that you have a film that promises like you don't know where this is headed and yet the film really does deliver on that because of whether or not it's evolving on the thread in the house or just, again, the metaphors in this film or the types of subject matter that it tries to touch upon. It is this thing that, as you said, has a baseline and yet it's building and evolving throughout the entire thing that by the time you get to that third act, it's almost like, okay, what's going to happen next? Even if you know we'll get to the third act and maybe that is a, a point of contention for us. But I want to highlight, mm-hmm. of course, we've come to the monster of the film, which I believe is just referred to as the mother, which is this mm-hmm. towering naked woman that is essentially one of the women that Richard Brake's character had, you know, raped, had these, and then there's all these generations of like incest babies that have been down in the tunnels and the dungeons and whatnot. And this is the mother of them all. That is this, you know, mm-hmm. towering figure that you know it almost feels kind of like a more demented version of the tall man from it follows kind of Mm. that was Mm -hmm. the first thing that popped into my head um but you know i thought that this was a really interesting you know villain if you will for the film but at the same time kind of like what we've been talking about you know craiger approaches something that very easily could have been you know we've been referring to it as the monster but you know he's able to make something that appears to be the antagonist, but still have a layer of sympathy to it, right? Because you have to be aware of the origin of the monster itself, right? Who is a victim themselves. Um, And it doesn't just kind of be this, I don't know. I guess when you're dealing with subject matter, such as rape and incest and these, you know, very Mm -hmm. uh, uncomfortable subject matter and, you know, can be very traumatic subject matter for people to be exposed to or to talk about. It is the type of thing though, that I'm appreciative of. It's not just, you know, a monster that you're going to, it is of course terrifying, but I mean, just the fact that it goes the distance to make it somewhat sympathetic. Right. And to re you know, remind the audience periodically that this is a victim themselves that right. is created by a, uh, you know, the, the real antagonist, which was Richard Brake's character. Right. Like you see her when 
the first act comes to an end and think, oh, well, that must be the titular barbarian. And then, like, as you keep watching, you're like, okay, well, maybe Justin Long is actually the barbarian. (laughs) And then you get to the end and you're like, well, I guess Richard Brake is the barbarian because of what he did to these women. And, like, the monster, quote unquote, is the result of his barbarism, right? That he has been kidnapping and raping these women for decades and now has produced this, you know, woman who is like monstrous, quote unquote, because of her DNA, but he is monstrous because of his choices. He's a barbarian because of the things that he has done to people. She is a barbarian because of, you know, how she is viewed because of the situation of her birth, essentially. And um, yeah, I think that not to rag on men too much, you know, the movie men, um, but I feel like that is something that this movie has that makes it feel like a next draft of what that movie is doing is that that movie is called men. The monster is men. There really is not that much to read into it. (laughs) And this one, it's barbarian, which is enticing and gets you to think about, okay, well, what does this mean? You know, it takes, it, it pushes you to, go that extra layer i talk about um i've talked about this a few times in like my writing but the movie birdman was a big movie for me as like a college student because it was one of the first movies that required me to think about what it meant to even get to a plot understanding of it the end of that movie is very symbolic and something that you can't understand unless you start reading into it. You have to do interpretation to get to even a basic understanding of the facts. Um, and so I've always appreciated like movies like that and sort of like Barbarian that like in order to understand what they're about, you have to do a little bit of intellectual work to get to it same with like no country for old men like that's a cryptic title until you start thinking about what it can mean so i'm a big fan of any movies that are gonna force the audience to do that especially if like this one they're like a rollicking good ride on the way to having to do some brain work about it yeah, now that you know we've reached this part of our discussion, you know, I classify this movie as uh, being the latest addition to like sicko cinema, right? Which I think is was really mm-hmm. like kicked off with something like Malignant, which, you know, yeah. and there's, while I don't know that I would compare the two films in that sense, but I would compare them as, you know, being a byproduct of this idea that, you know, you don't have to have the big reveal in the first or second chunk of a film, right? You really can, you know, lead the audience along with, you know, whether it be sort of the giallo focus of Malignant and then having that Mm -hmm. big kind of crazy monster reveal at the end, or you can have something like Barbarian, right, which we've been talking about, which presents itself as something very familiar, but then, you know, has a little bit more to say about, you know, whether it be America or just the gender dynamics between characters, Mm -hmm. or, you know, as you've just laid out, you know, getting to the root of who the true Barbarian is in the film, right, and analyzing characters and their role. um, And, you know, it, that being something that is, uh, I believe, like multifaceted, you could say that people are the barbarian for various reasons, and it's not just mm-hmm. because of you know someone looks monstrous. Um, but I find that with this film, its ability to not only not kind of reveal the monster too early on, but also you know once it does have that reveal and you learn the history of it, the more horror centric moments of it that have the the, the depraved kind of stomach churning moments 
they're all targeted at the right characters. Uh, you know, of mm-hmm. course, Justin Long is the character that gets the brunt of that. Um, I, you know, I do feel a little bad for Keith who got his head bashed against the wall. And by all accounts, he was not a bad guy. He was a red herring, right? But then you get to AJ's character and the fact that, you know, he's forced to, he won't take a bottle, which that's the big thing with the mother, right? Is that she views all of her victims as being her children because that's, she's been brainwashed and, you know, manipulated in these things. And, you know, Justin Long won't take the bottle, which is uh, conveniently and grotesquely covered in hair when it's offered to Tess, Mm. who has learned, you know, oh, well, if you drink from the bottle, she'll leave us alone. Justin Long, of course, is not interested in that um, and quite literally has to be breastfed in this very creepy, like, birthing room, I suppose, for lack of a better way to describe it. But, you know, even furthermore, you know, the ending of the film and how most of the violence in the movie is directed towards people that more or less kind of had it coming, uh, which I think really does go into, you know, the way in which the quote unquote monster is, you know, a victim of circumstance rather than being this truly malevolent force, if you will. Yeah. I think um, the only way that that isn't the case is that, Frank ends up getting to dictate the own term his his own terms for his death, right? Yeah. Because Justin Long sort of inadvertently hands him a pistol mm-hmm. or puts it where he can grab it and then he shoots himself, you know, at the moment that he otherwise might have faced accountability, right? Yeah. Um but yeah, he's the sort of true the truest villain of this movie. You know, Justin Long also does villainous things, but like Frank is the one who is guilty of this whole like decades of, you know, abuse. And he gets to sort of set the terms for leaving this world. Um something I was curious about, and I wonder if you have a take on this, is why there is nobody else in this in the basement and the, in the tunnels, we only see the mother and Frank, but Frank had, you know, been breeding, you know, generations uh, for decades and decades before that. But with the only one we, we see is the, is the mother. So I'm curious if you have a take on why that is. And if the others just escaped or if he just killed all of them. Yeah. My, I guess my initial response, which is, not going to be that creative of one is that, you know, budgetary restraints, right? Again, this film Mm -hmm. has a minuscule budget compared to a majority of other movies that, you know, maybe tried to have a similar style of, um, I don't know, this ballpark of horror that this film is playing in. But, you know, also I think that there is more facets probably to Frank's depravity than we're shown in the film. And it's actually another thing that I'm appreciative of with the way in which Craigers handles the you know uncomfortable subject matter that I mentioned, um, the fact that when AJ finds his tape collection, right, of all of the people that he's done this to, he's recorded it, and the, one of the most chilling parts of the movie is just reading the labels on those. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like it describes the women, and we of course know what he's been doing to them, but it just describes their appearance, and then you get to one that says like blind pregnant woman or something like that, which mm-hmm. I mean, just mm-hmm. like the fact of the descriptions are more terrifying uh, than, you know, I think even just seeing AJ's reaction, but I'm appreciative of the fact that, you know, dealing with this subject matter, Craig doesn't 
he doesn't feel the need to, as shocking as the movie is, he doesn't feel the need to shock by, you know, showing anything like that. You know, that was one of my worries right. when we get to the flashback with Frank and we see the buildup to him and what he's going to do to his most recent victim. But we don't have to see that moment. And, you know, for that, I'm appreciative of, you know, Krager's mm -hmm. handling of the subject matter and that, you know, it's implied heavily, it's discussed, but doesn't feel the need to go for that extra shock of, you know, showing us a depiction of anything along those lines. Right. What even what happens in the flashback? I'm forgetting what Frank does. He like sneaks into somebody's house and he takes something, but I don't remember what he takes. Do you remember? Yeah. So it goes basically through his day of going to the store, which really is just him going out scouting for his next victim. Right. Follows the victim home and then takes on the appearance of a, you know, a, a, a electricity repairman or telephone repairman, gets into the house and unlocks a window and then leaves. Mm. And so, you know, the implication is that's the window he's going to break into the home right. later at night and kidnap the woman. Um, and again, like I'm more appreciative of the fact of getting to follow this despicable character, but we don't actually have to see the acts that they're committing because of anything, you know, seeing how methodical he is, seeing his interaction with somebody that's normal, like he talks to one of his neighbors and just how uncomfortable that interaction is when it's just mm -hmm. two people having a regular conversation about the neighborhood or this or that. And I think that even at one point, the neighbor's like, well, we're going to be leaving because the neighborhood's changing. And Frank's, he says something along the lines of like, I'm never leaving or that's my home or yeah. something like that, which the more you learn about obviously what he's capable of, what he's been doing, it just, it makes that whole concept of a home that much more terrifying of it being essentially like a dungeon for people's worst secrets. Um, right. And yeah, you know, I guess going back to your original question, I would assume that he has either killed all those people or, you know, they were resistant to the uh, the mother's embrace, I suppose, yeah. um, and were killed as a byproduct of that. Um, but yeah, I would think mostly it just it has to do with budget. It's like they probably wanted right. to have a scene where, you know, he finds a flashlight and shines it and there's 20 or 30 people in cages or something along those lines. But, you know, mm -hmm. they can only do so much with four million. And what they were able to do, I think, was was pretty good. Right. And it has a different um, impact as a result of that. Right. Like it would be a different movie if there was if the dungeon was like filled with other people. Right. It's like the thing that people say about the original Halloween is that part of what makes that movie so eerie is that despite it being Halloween night, the streets around um, Jamie Lee Curtis's house are all completely empty it's just michael myers basically unless it's like characters that you need for a scene because they're having a conversation or something there's no passers-by there's no trick-or-treaters it's just michael myers or it's empty and barbarian is sort of you know has that similar thing where it's like with a higher budget they could have done more in that way but they don't really need to like it's successful without that something that you said got me thinking which is that during that scene between Frank and the neighbor, they both are saying things to each other that are innocuous on the surface, but are masking, you know, sort of evil beneath them, right? Which is Frank is saying, you know, I'm never leaving here or, you know, whatever he says, which is, you know, the reason he's saying that is because he has this sex dungeon that he has built where he is, you know, keeping his prisoners. And the other man, like, it's less violent, but it's not less monstrous, which is that he is, when he's saying, you know, the neighborhood's going to shit, he means that black people are moving into the neighborhood. 
like they both are it's an illustration of like the way that language is like you know it's the tip of the iceberg and then there's this iceberg beneath it that is actually what we really mean when we say certain things even if those things are harmless on the face of them yeah and you know the fact that the neighbor is so plainly you know saying what he's saying um it's the realization that you know while we have this fantastical horrific villain right that is frank the reality is is that there's a whole lot more of his neighbor in our country than there are of frank you know hopefully Mm -hmm. um and you know seeing how people like that neighbor who on the surface you know seem completely normal they seem like oh this is just your average american he's got the family he's got the nice house clearly is employed in these things and then seeing what people like that do to an entire city Right. The fact that mm-hmm. that kind of mindset and that that fear and that hatred that they have for other people, you know, that essentially destroys an entire city. And in the large, you know, mm-hmm. that's not singular to Detroit. Right. That's something that has happened in countless na- countless cities throughout the country. You know, it's not going to be the same scale. Right. But just in general, mm-hmm. like that type of ideology, you know, has quite literally been like a cancer in certain communities that eventually will make them crumble right. and never reach the uh, the prosperity, if you will, that they could have attained. Um, and right. again, like you said, it's a, such a small and brief interaction, but that's all through just language and how innocuous things can seem. And yet we're able to have that conversation about it. And it form, you know, shows not only Krager making commentary on, you know, America and politics and cultures and these things, but the fact that he's able to make that in a movie that's about, again, like a monster in a basement that tries to kill people um, and doesn't have to dedicate an entire monologue to something like that or go down a path that might be more contrived. Um, And yeah, yeah. The more that I think about this movie and how I'm so happy it's coming out to uh, HBO Max, at the end of the month mm. to revisit it and to show more people that didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, just because it's a film that has a lot more levels to it than you might expect for a movie that you could say, like, you don't know where it's going or it has a crazy fucked up ending. You can, yeah. it's evidence of something that, you know, a lot more thought was put into than perhaps something like uh, men was. Um, yeah. But I would love to get into the ending because if I'm not mistaken, that's the point of the film that I think you and I both have a little more reservations about. Um, and I'm curious, yeah. you know, so for you, what, how did that ending, you know, land for you? I think it just felt a little simplistic for how twisty the journey we took to get there was. I think after, like, once you find out what is happening in the basement and, you know, the guy that lives in the neighborhood that runs after Tess when she gets there, and then finds her once she escapes, like explains what is happening. You basically know exactly, you basically know everything that the movie has to tell you after that point. It's not that I don't like the ideas that it's playing with. I think it just is like, when I realized that like the extent of what was going on was that this old like rapist had a dungeon where he was keeping women and that was sort of the extent of what was going on i felt like i sort of crashed down to earth where i was like oh this isn't gonna go as wild as i was hoping it would you know like that's all pretty wild but it also is like the kind of wild that it's like i could imagine a criminal minds or like 60 minutes episode that is about like a guy who was doing something like this you know or like frank isn't that different than like the you know 
the fundamental the fundamentalist latter-day saints you know the the cult mm. break off from mormonism that like has like you know their own towns that are that are like you know built around patriarchs who are you know can claim whichever of the wives they want and sort of all the men that are like powerful in there get to like have their first choice of like women it's sort of like what frank is doing is sort of that but subterranean and he's the only one there you know he's not building a cult he just is sort of is building a dungeon for the same desires that would motivate somebody to build a cult so i think um it got compared so much to malignant that i was malignant is like you know is is as good as it is because it is so wild that like when you first start watching that movie you at least i did not expect at all where it was going to go and then when it goes there you're like okay this is nuts this is great um or another i wrote an article recently that was about how good horror tends to be a good mystery Mm. that is like you know you are wondering what is happening in the same way that the characters are wondering what's happening and get out i think i've mentioned it a few times is sort of the apex of that kind of movie because it's like you know that something is wrong very early on but you don't know what is wrong and when it introduces the sci-fi element to explain what's going on it feels like it escalates from what you thought was going on and this one i think because it takes so long to answer what is going on it lets your mind wander mm-hmm. and then when it has an explanation that's relatively like plausible it sort of brought me back down to earth in a way that i ended up enjoying it a little less than i expected to during the middle portion of it yeah you know i think that i was Definitely. Part of me was disappointed in the fact that there was not another sort of twist to it. You know, I was uh, mm-hmm. kind of along the lines of Malignant, right? That movie, it the first time you watch that, there is no chance that you could ever guess the direction that movie goes in. And right. even just the layers with which that builds upon, I find, when you finally do have that reveal, it's like, okay, this is wild and out of left field. I was not expecting this. But the way that it still builds upon that in new and exciting ways, you know, thinking about going from the reveal to then the police station fight, which then just you know, takes this very isolated incident of, you know, the brawl in the jail cell and then blows it up to the entire precinct that it's like an action movie or something. Um, So like that, at least I was like, okay, so I don't truly know just how big this can get. And, you know, clearly in that instance, the bigger that that scene at the end of Malignant gets, the quality is still there, right? It doesn't feel like, oh, we're getting too big for our britches type of a thing. It's like, no, Mm. we really don't know how big this movie can get. Um, And even if it never gets bigger than that police station assault, it presents itself as if that is only the beginning. But with Malignant Mm -hmm. or with, you know, Barbarian, you're right that, you know, once you have that reveal, it's kind of like, okay, I suppose I would have liked something different. But at the same time, I was a fan of the fact that, you know, I at least got this really gruesome monster type of a moment. Right. Yeah. But even in saying that. I'm a little torn on it, right? Because who is the first victim when they get outside? It's not AJ, it's Andre, the homeless man, who's basically right. like the saint of the neighborhood, which, you know, that interaction and the fact that, you know, not only does he get killed, but he gets beaten to death with his own arm, uh, which uh-huh. you know is like, that's a moment you can't not kind of laugh at just for the lunacy of it. But at the same yeah. time, thinking about, you know, the commentary that's made in the first half of the film, it was kind of like, well, okay, so we've had this, really well thought out and multi-leveled, multi-layered sort of commentary. 
but then we're going to go after and make a victim out of one of the only people in that neighborhood still that's a victim from when the neighborhood didn't resemble what it does today. Um, mm -hmm. So like that part was kind of a strange decision. But then also, you know, just thinking about the fact that you have this awesome setting of this tunnel system, which we don't really know a great deal about still. We don't know how deep mm -hmm. the mine goes. We don't even know if it keeps going down more. And, yeah. you know, I thought that that was a cool setting that they kind of abandoned for a water tower. And I was just like, mm -hmm. it seems like a strange decision to when you're not going to, you know, increase the scope or the scale that much. Why not stay small? Because this is a movie that so excels at the claustrophobic mm. interactions in those tunnels and whatnot that I was kind of like, eh, do we really need to leave the house? I feel like that's the main setting right. of the film. So why would we not, you know, continue to capitalize on, you know, this labyrinth that we truly don't know how deep it goes. And, you know, who's to say that you can't come up with some cool area underneath there to have something uh, unfold within. Uh, but I guess right. the only part of the finale that I am a fan of is the fact that, you know, AJ gets what, is coming to him, right? And that yeah. he has had the setup to have a potential redemptive arc, right? The fact that, you know, he's right. more or less guilty of what he was accused of, but seeing him interact with somebody in this unfathomable situation, maybe he can rise to the occasion in a way that doesn't absolve him of his sins, but it's the right. step to maybe becoming a good person or what, or as much of a good person as somebody that has done something like that could be. That's a weird way to phrase that, but just the mm -hmm. semblance of some type of hero's arc, if you will, in the traditional right. film sense. But then of course we see, what does he do? He uses the opportunity of, Oh, there's another person with me. I'll use them as bait. And then, you know, throws her off the building with the mother. Um, right. You know, that part was a little on the nose, right? The mother sacrificing itself to save the child. Um, right. But at the end of the day, we get to see Justin Long's head be ripped uh, ripped apart. Which right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like the Justin Long doing that because it is such a, you know, like you may have sort of been blinded by him acting like a nice guy, but that's a moment where the scales fall off your eyes and you're like, oh, okay, he is exactly what I initially clocked him as. He is as bad as I thought he was. Um, I'm sort of split on the... Andre being, you know, getting brutally murdered like that, because I feel like it sort of is in keeping with the movie's themes that he that happens to him that like this longtime resident of this neighborhood is victimized by this white man's mm. like terrible decisions, you know, like that, you know, the consequences of what Frank has done reverberate and hit Andre, even though he's not doing anything but trying to help. Like, I feel like that sort of works for me thematically, you know, even if it does. I mean, he's not like the first person to die. So it's not like the trope of like the black guy being the first guy to die in a movie. But even if it is sort of adjacent to that, I feel like it is doing something sort of thematically interesting for its like broader critiques of capitalism and how white flight sort of destroyed Detroit. But I would need to think about it more to know exactly how I feel about it. But that's sort of is how I think about it right now. But I could see going the other way on it. No, I, I think what you said makes a lot of sense, right? It's the idea that he is the victim of, you know, not only that white flight, but that white flight that happened decades and decades and decades ago. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, I, I guess the you know, the more monster focused, uh, gory horror fan in me is like, oh, it's cool that we got to have those moments at the end of the film. Right. I suppose mm -hmm. though, you know, 
once you are removed from the initial moment of the shock of the gore and whatnot, it's kind of like we couldn't have thought of anything a little more creative just in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. how we could wrap this story up. Because as we've said, you know, the film does a, such a great job, I find, of building up to that reveal and the twists and turns that it takes are far more interesting. You know, you, uh, I think, mentioned as being like Tarantino-esque or Pulp Fiction-esque, mm-hmm. right? The different avenues that we take to get to this end point. It's just a shame that, you know, the end point that we reach is more along the lines, I think, of what we would have expected from a film like this if it had been spelled out, you know, far more than it was in the trailer or just the overall perception of what this movie, uh, what this movie dabbles in. Yeah, I think you're right that introducing that subterranean world makes me want to see more of it. And I feel like they get a lot of they get a lot of mileage out of as much as they show of it, you know, and I'm sure that their budget probably did not allow them Mm -hmm. to build out much more than what we did see. Mm -hmm. But I agree that I it would have been more interesting to see that final confrontation happen down there. But I don't know, like, uh, again, it's like so much of the movie is like subtextually at least focused on like urban decay and what has happened to Detroit. So having it happen there and like turning, you know, this rundown neighborhood into the setting for that is interesting to me in that way. But I'm with you that for whatever reason, the like finale doesn't fully land for me as much as the first, you know, four fifths of the movie or so does. Yeah. Um, I guess the the only thing that I was just thinking about, I was like, how great would it have been if Justin Long's character had to swap places essentially with Frank, where then he has to be confined to this hell and then ends up being, you know, the new vegetative uh, resident that just uh-huh. stays there until, you know, somebody comes by and bestows him a pistol like he did for Frank. Um, right. But yeah, you know, in wrapping up um, for you, like, were there any other elements of the movie that I kind of skimmed over that you wanted to touch upon? This isn't really an element of the movie so much as the reception that it's had at the box office, but something I've been thinking about a lot, especially after seeing Bros Bomb, mm. Billy Eichner's comedy, mm-hmm. is that we, it is like sort of pathetic at this point how bad theatrical comedies are doing and how little push there seems to be to get like theatrical comedies off the ground again. Mm. And um, I feel like I've heard other people say this, like, um, I think on Blank Check's episode on used cars, they talked about, like, how the theatrical comedy needs its own A24 or Blumhouse or, like, a distributor or studio that is, like, making or distributing movies that cost a few million dollars and that all they need to recoup their budget is to be, like, the most mild successes at the box office. And then once or twice a year, you get a movie like that that, is a runaway hit. Um, you know, like a movie like The Big Sec, the Kumail Nanjiani comedy was a huge success, but it only made $50 million. And it was a success because like this movie, it made 10 times more than its budget. So I would, I, I don't know. I feel like Barbarian is sort of instructive on how you can do this kind of thing. Like, like you can be extremely successful, like Get Out was on like a $7 million budget or whatever that had. Mm-hmm. You can be pretty successful like barbarian was or you could just like recoup your budget and production costs and that's also a success like i think that this shows that if you keep your budget low and don't need to make the most profit all the time like there are a wide variety of movies that could be 
in theatrical distribution right now that as it stands are like getting shunted to streaming. Um, and I feel like right now horror is the main place where that is happening. And I would love to see that expand to other genres as well and rebuild that sort of healthy theatrical movie going experience for stuff outside of superhero movies, which have all, which have been very healthy and horror is like also healthy because they keep their budgets very low. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what barbarian makes me want. It makes me want for other movies to be successful at the box office like this one is. Yeah. And it's so remarkable that, you know, you mentioned a 24, a 24, and I believe it's Blumhouse both passed on this movie originally, which, you know, is, I can't even conceive of how that is the case because this just feels like a movie that's so in their ballpark. But, you know, I totally agree with just the idea that, you know, I think that the metric with which we view a successful film is so screwed up because of, you know, Mm -hmm. and not going to throw all the blame at like superhero movies and those things, but, you know, the idea that a movie that doesn't make 200, 400 million dollars is a failure is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, you know, coming back to what I said at the beginning of the episode, right, the marketing for things, you know, I, I saw the trailer for Bros and just, it was one of those things where I was like, why are, am I hearing so many jokes and punchlines in this? This should have been yeah. a 90 second trailer, if that. Right. And it was the type mm-hmm. of thing where, you know, I saw it in the theater before the um, the David Bowie documentary, Moon Age Dream. And it was mm-hmm. the thing where I was like, this is like a two, two and a half minute trailer for a comedy. And I was yeah. like, why am I being so, shown so much of this? And then when you go to a film like Barbarian that shows so little, but what yeah. is there is very intriguing without knowing anything. I mean, I literally knew nothing about this film other than there's a double booked Airbnb and there's a creepy basement, which right. if I said that to one of my buddies, that's not the biggest horror fans. They're like, who gives a shit? That's like a hundred other movies that have been in this genre. <laughs> yeah. But when you sit down and you look at something and the way that that trailer's crafted, and you know, even in the film itself, when you look at that first act, the way that it's crafted, there's not only does it look like it's a more expensive movie than it actually is, but just mm. the way that it's cut around so many different things, I found I was like, okay, this is creating an atmosphere, and there's a lot of choice shots here that are presenting very traditional elements like the creepy dark staircase standing at the top mm. and then getting a shot from at the, the bottom of the staircase, right? But just the way that things are composed and how little of it there actually is, it's kind of the thing where it's like, well, this can't be it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, actually having the reveal that, okay, there is a lot more to this is probably why this has such explosive word to mouth, right? I find that yeah, when you look at the landscape, not only just of horror, but of film in general, you know, we might enjoy a lot of movies, but at the end of the day, like how many of them are doing something that we haven't seen before or, you know, are actually delivering on the promise of something that you can't really expect. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that films such as Barbarian, you know, even a film like Malignant, right? That had, of course, James Wan is a much bigger name in horror. That movie has a bigger budget and it had more distribution, things of that nature. But at the end of the day, like from that trailer, I was not sold on that movie really, up mm-hmm. until the end of the movie when there's sort of this hint at something supernatural, but then it ends right away. And that was probably a right. teaser trailer I saw. But again, presenting things that are, you know, normal or more conventional, but having an air to it of mystery. I mean, it, mm-hmm. again, talking about Barbarian, it's a $4 million movie that's made almost $40 million. Uh, right. And it's such a simple premise. And yet it's willing to, you know, take risks in terms of actually delivering on this 
fucked up demented thing that I'm sure, you know, turned a few heads in a board meeting, like we're going to make a movie about what that's the reveal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, having the follow through and the, not only just the buildup to that moment, but, you know, all of the pieces of this up until, you know, that third act, as we talked about, it feels like it's given a lot more attention than maybe more run of the mill horror films, you know, talking again about Mm -hmm. fleshing out Justin Long's character for, Mm -hmm. I think almost 15 minutes before he gets to the house. Like, that was a yeah. it, like a well thought out decision that at the end of the day ends adds more context to that character, but also just the world in general thematically, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. Um, yeah, it definitely is a bummer, and I think you were the person that put me on to just realizing you know how few comedies we get, theatrical comedies we yeah. get that you know you can end up talking about in a way that you do your favorite comedies from you know 10, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. You know now if I see a comedy. It's because it's on some streaming service and I mentioned one or two jokes to somebody, but at the end of the day, I remember those two jokes. It doesn't feel as much of like an ensemble film or something along those lines as um, maybe some of my favorite yeah. comedies were. Yeah, I think that horror fans are one of the few like genre uh, audiences that is fully tapped into how satisfying it is to see something with a crowd like how satisfying it is to see a really scary or really entertaining horror movie with a crowd and comedy for whatever reason has sort of lost that over the past decade or so that it's like i used to see comedies in theaters all the time like i remember seeing will ferrell comedies all the time with my friends growing up in theaters and now that just is not something that is being made or marketed and I feel like something that the rest of the industry sort of needs to learn from horror and word of mouth successes is that people will um, go to the theater to see something. If you can sell them on the idea that it will be worth seeing it with a crowd of people. Like that's why Top Gun Maverick has been as successful as it has is that that's an extremely satisfying movie to see with an audience and see on a big screen. Um, And yeah, I just want movies to be, have a robust, um, showing at the like a robust variety of movies available at the theater rather than just the same few genres you know i'm I'm not as well versed in comedies perhaps as i am in uh horror but it is the type of thing where you know i i struggle to think about a recent comedy that i've seen maybe you know game night might be the best example of like a, co- a theatrical comedy that i really really enjoyed because, and you know, it might sound, uh, I don't know, oversimplification, but there's more to that film than just jokes. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, you know, whether it's the way that that film is shot, whether it's just the characters in general or having this communal experience within themselves, right? Of the, the concept of the game night and how you have these budding personalities that all come together. You know, that was a film that really worked for me because it, it felt like it was more than just, you know, one liner after one liner of those things. Again, I'm oversimplification of what a good comedy is, but I just find that, you know, so many comedies that I had seen in the last maybe five years, it was the type of thing where it was just like a joke and then a joke and then a joke and a joke to the point that it almost feels just like an overly long sketch rather than, Mm. you know, an actual feature film. Um, Yeah. You know, something along those lines and, you know, thinking about laughing with an audience. The most I've laughed in the last 10 years was at horror movies with audiences, you know, thinking about, I mean, this film whether it was seeing malignant and laughing along with people or, you know, get out that ending and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just the type of thing that I think you're right. You know, a communal experience has seemingly passed comedies by 
because and that mm-hmm. might be because so many other films from different genres are like using humor at opportune times to deliver jokes right. when people aren't expecting them perhaps right um that might just be I'm, me going down a rabbit hole but yeah no i think that's true and i i'm hoping that the like the past few marvel movies that i've seen have not like have tried to be funny but haven't been funny at all <laughs> and i feel like for like the past like you know 10 years or so audiences sort of expected to get like a comedy fix at marvel movies like Mm. especially with like the rdj movies you know like iron man 3 was very funny guardians of the galaxy was very funny like we've had these movies that are like have been like funny and also doing something else and now i feel like those movies have really fallen off with their jokes especially because they don't have an extremely gifted comedic actor like robert denny jr anymore to sell all that um that i hope maybe that helps the comedy get back is that people realize how much they're missing seeing comedies or that like it continues to be a genre that just gets mixed in with other genres like bodies 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 was like successful for its budget level jackass 4 was the biggest um you know comedy of the year and the jackass movies are have have always been like sort of horror too like they're comedy (laughs) but they're body horror right right? (laughs) like they're like you wince as much watching those movies as you laugh um so i don't know i am sort of invested in comedies rebounding and getting back at the theatrical level and i think like maybe um you know the the funniest comedy i saw last year was bad trip the eric andre um borat style movie where it's you know like hidden camera kind of stuff and i feel like stuff like that that has that like element of that it is like oh man i need to like look away kind of vibe that borat and like anything that is like gonna make you wince i feel like those are comedies that can be successful right now because they tap into some of the same emotions that horror taps into but I don't know. Barbarian's good. Glad it's doing doing well. Happy for Zach Kreger. Love the whitest kids you know when I was in high school. Happy to see uh, one of their alumni doing well. Last, last thing on that, I just feel like this might be a byproduct of, you know, the way in which streaming has conditioned us to consume media, right? I think that, mm-hmm. you know, there a lot of the time I encounter this types of conversation, specifically during the pandemic, right? When HBO is doing those uh, simultaneous releases from home or in the theater, right? And I was encountering a lot of conversations with people about, oh, well, that's a movie I would see in the theater versus something I can just watch at home, right? And that's not right. to say one is better than a writer than the other, but just I find that with something like a comedy, right? It's like, well, do you need to see that on the big screen from the sense of like, okay, comparing that to like watching Maverick at home or at the theater, mm-hmm. right? And I think that streaming and how consumable things are. I mean, you mentioned Bad Trip. I believe that was a Netflix movie, right? That was, was. you know, granted that did not have a theatrical release, I don't believe, but it was the type of thing where if that had the option of like, okay, I could do a VOD rental at home or I could go see it in the theater, right? I would venture that majority of people would go and see that uh, at from the comfort Mm -hmm. of their home. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, that conversation of consuming media, it's the type of thing. Do I need to see that on the big screen or not? And it's not to say that, you know, I'm not a fan of the fact that people have more options. I think more options are better, obviously. Of course, there's people Mm -hmm. that, you know, can't access theaters for a variety of reasons or this or that. Right. Um, And it's a complicated time. I think, again, thinking about, you know, the metric of success for a film, 
has been screwed up. And I don't know if there's coming back from that necessarily in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, where that ceiling is for success that other films have sort of like inflated the notion of what it, you know, apparently recouping your budget is a failure these days. Um, right. But who knows? Horror seems to be doing okay with films like Barbarian and whatnot. So we can only right. hope, but you know, man, as always, I appreciate you bringing uh, more insight than perhaps I even had into this film. Uh, <laughs> I always, I always enjoy chatting about movies with you in some depth and uh, yeah, I look forward to the next time. Yes, I always enjoy being on here. It gives me a chance to think more deeply about these movies. I saw Barbarian like two weeks ago and enjoyed it, but didn't think about it a ton. And then today I was sort of like going back, reading through like the Wikipedia plot summary to remind myself, Mm. reading some reviews and some interviews. And like, yeah, it's always fun to get the opportunity to think more deeply about the medium that we love, the movies. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.